Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. I'm so excited to be able to share with you. We're going to continue our, our B-List series where we are looking at characters in the biblical story of Christmas that sometimes get overlooked, uh, characters that we don't talk about a lot. And today we're going to continue to do that with another character that um, plays a, a bigger role in the story than we may think. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about Christmas is the stuff that comes on television. Uh, holiday specials, movies that come on. Uh, there's a whole list of movies and television shows that I have to watch when it's Christmas. I remember being a kid and being so excited about Christmas because I knew there were certain things that were going to come on TV. Uh, Rudolph was going to come on television. Uh, Charlie Brown, Christmas was going to be on Frosty was going to be on, all of these things, all these shows, and I look forward to them so much, and I still do. Uh, and you probably have a list of shows, movies, things like that. We have movies that we love, um, tons of Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite ones. Um, you know, we all have these stories, and every one of these stories have heroes in the story, right? You know, Rudolph comes and saves the day, and, and every, every story has a hero, but if we think about it, so many of those stories also have villains. Uh, they have the, the villain who tries to stop Christmas or the, the villain who tries to sabotage what's going on. I mean, we have in, in Rudolph, we have um, the character that uh, Yukon Cornelius calls the Bumble, which he's the abominable snowman, right? You remember him? It's like, he's like the bad, one of the bad guys, like the villains in the story. Uh, Frosty. You remember who the villain was in Frosty? It's Professor Hinkle. You remember him? He's the, he's the professor, he's the magician that's got the hat and he thinks it doesn't work and he tosses it and the kids get it, put it on Frosty, he comes to life and then Professor Hinkle wants the hat back because he wants to be famous uh, and I hope I'm not spoiling, spoiling the story for anybody. I hope you all have seen all these shows already. Um, even in Home Alone, who is Kevin? Who is, the, who is the, the bad guy in Home Alone? Or bad guys? It's the wet bandits. Right. It's, it's, um, their names are Harry and Marv. Uh, even Kevin has bad guys that he has to fight. Um, Ralphie in A Christmas Story. Everybody's going to watch that at least once if you have your television turned on at Christmas, right? Because it plays 24 hours. Um, Scott Farkas, right? Like everybody loves seeing... Ralphie just beat the snot out of Scud Farkas because he's he he's he's the bad guy. Like um, you know, Mr. Potter is in It's a Wonderful Life. He's he's the bad guy. And then my favorite one, all the Who's down in Whoville. Liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. That's right. The Grinch is probably my favorite. But when we look at the biblical story, if there is a villain or a Grinch in the story of Christmas, as the scriptures tell us, it is probably the man that we're going to look at today by the name of Herod the Great. King Herod is... Um, an important part of the story, and he plays a, a, a pretty significant role because the gospel writers, Matthew, includes the story of Herod in 
his gospel, but we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about Herod or, or really thinking about him very much. But I want us to do that. I want to give you a little bit of history, teach you a little bit this morning about his role in the story and then see what we can learn for ourselves based on what is Herod's response to what God is doing and bringing into the world through Jesus. So if you look in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 is where we find the story of Herod. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. And Matthew writes in this Gospel this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now we're going to time out here for a second because I have to give you a little bit of history for you to understand exactly what all is happening right here in these verses. Uh, Matthew and his gospel, we've, we've looked at Luke's gospel and Luke began his story with Zechariah and Elizabeth, also a couple of what we would call B-list characters. Matthew in chapter 2 of his gospel, introduces Herod and the Magi. But in chapter 1, he, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus. And then, um, because he's, he's making a point to show how God has worked all throughout the generations to bring this moment in history to pass. And then he gives a very brief summary. Actually, the, the part in Matthew's gospel that actually talks about the birth of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is very short. It's not specific. He spends most of his time, a whole chapter two, telling this story of this interaction between the Magi and King Herod. So I want to tell you a little bit about Herod. We know that in these times, Rome was the superpower. Rome was um, the, the military, the political power of the day in the West, and they ruled over Judea during this time. And whenever Rome occupied a country or a region, they would always choose a ruler and place him over that region to represent the Roman Empire. And so Herod was that king that Rome had put in place over Judea during that time. The interesting thing, Herod was given the title King of the Jews. And he was known as that. But that was a title that he was given. That was not a title that he earned. He was not the King of Judea by right because Herod was not a Jew. So he was not king in the eyes of the people. But even in the eyes of the Romans, he wasn't completely legitimate because he wasn't a Roman either. Uh, Herod was an Edomite, which made him a descendant of Esau. The Edomites were a people who were descendant from Esau. The Jews were descendants of Jacob. And so the Edomites came from the line of Esau. Um, and there's a lot of history behind how Herod got on his place in the throne. Uh, Julius Caesar was friends with Herod's father, who was Antipas. Uh, and when Herod was around uh, 28 years old, Antipas 
was the larger ruler. He gave Herod uh, charge over Galilee when he was around 28. Basically because it, you're my son, I'm going to give you this, this area to rule over. And so as Herod began his political career, uh, it began to grow. He was very effective. We wouldn't call him a good ruler or governor, but he was effective. He accomplished what he set out to do. When he got to be about 10, 8 to 10 years later, he was given the title of King of the Jews by Rome, and they placed him not, not just over Galilee, but over all of Judea. And so Herod was a king who had been placed in his position. So he was constantly looking over his shoulder. He was always seeking the approval of Rome in everything that he did. He, but at the same time, he was trying to gain favor with the Jews because he was in charge of them. He was to govern them for Rome. And so he's, he's trying to gain favor with the people, but at the same time, he wants to make Rome. He wants to make Caesar happy. And he was called Herod the Great because he was most famous for accomplishing big architectural um, building projects. He, he constructed fortresses. He built port cities uh, off of Judea. And he even uh, rebuilt um, the temple in Jerusalem around 20 BCE because he was trying to earn favor with the Jews. And so he reconstructed his version of the temple. But he was never a legitimate king in the eyes of the people. Because they were Jews, and the Jews were waiting for a Messiah to come. Herod was the kind of king that Messiah was supposed to come and free them from. So they really hated Herod. They represented, he represented the rule and the oppression of Rome over them. And the people were waiting for Messiah to come to get rid of Herod, to get rid of the Romans, and to free them. Personally, Herod was also known to be, throughout history, a very cruel and merciless uh, ruler. He was determined to keep whatever he gained at all cost. Uh, anyone that he faced who opposed him, history says even he had his wife and his own children executed because he would take out anybody that he thought would stand in his way of holding on and building the kingdom that he was trying to build for himself. So he lived in this constant state of fear that someone would take away his kingdom, what he was trying to build and put together. So now Matthew tells us that the Magi show up in Jerusalem and they come and they knock on the door of Herod's palace. And they say, we've come looking for a new king. But it's not you. Now, I, I need to tell you a little bit, too, about the Magi. I don't want to spend all of our time talking about the Magi, but, but the wise men, we call them often, are often misunderstood, too. These were men from the Persian Empire that was to the east. So we have Rome, who was the, the major power in the West that pretty much ruled the whole world from that 
standpoint, and then there's the, this Persian empire in the east. The wise men were from that empire, the Magi. They represented a Gentile mystical religion that was influenced by the Jews because of the Babylonian exile. When the Jews went into exile, there were so many of the Jews that went into that Eastern, in, into Bab- Babylon, uh, Daniel being one of those, and the Magi were actually a, a sect of leaders in Persia who were directly influenced by the teachings of Daniel. And so they, they knew the teachings of Daniel, they knew the prophecies of Daniel, they had studied the Old Testament. They knew what the Scripture said about God and about the Messiah. And they actually came believing that the Hebrew God was the one true God. And they studied the prophecies of the coming Messiah, even though they weren't Jews. And also what's interesting to know is in that Eastern Persian culture, the Magi were the ones that had the power to declare who would be king over their kingdom. They were the, the governing body who decided who was going to be placed as king. And during this time in history, that eastern kingdom didn't have a king. That's why the Magi come searching for a king. And so... I also want to tell you a little bit, uh, dispel a little bit of, of, of rumor and tradition to tell you why does, why does Herod react the way he does to the Magi. First of all, we do know that, and, and Matthew tells us that this took place after Jesus had already been born. And when the Magi show up at Herod's palace in Jerusalem, this isn't three guys on three camels. Okay? Um, we, we know that there were three gifts that were mentioned that they bring to give to the new king, but there's no mention of how many of them there were. Actually, history tells us there likely were hundreds and hundreds of magi because these were important guys in the Eastern Empire. And if they were traveling, they were important. They were elite I guess you would say. And so they would have been traveling with a whole entourage of people. They would have had servants. They would have had animals. They would have had animal keepers. They would have had cooks and chefs and people to provide for them because that's a long journey. And so it's not just three guys knocking on Herod's door. This entourage moves into Jerusalem at this time. This entourage of these eastern Leaders that come in. And verse 3 says that when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. This is why Herod is having a freak out moment. He has his kingdom. And he's got it how he likes it. And he's trying to make Rome happy. And he's trying to keep the Jews happy. Now all of a sudden... This eastern empire, this entourage from the east shows up and says, hey, we're coming looking for a new king. There's a prophecy of a new king that's going to be crowned, and it's not you, but we've come to find him so that we can worship him. Here's another thing that may have been going on causing Herod to freak out. Rome was the superpower in the west. 
These guys were from the great empire in the east. The easterners didn't have a king. The magi were the ones who had the authority and right to name the king and put him into power. It's likely that they were coming into Jerusalem looking for this newborn king because they knew what the scripture said. They knew what Daniel had said about him. So if we can find him, we can institute him and set him as king of our empire. Then, if he's king, if he's a, this Jewish king, he's the Jews' Messiah, we can move into Judea, we can move into Jerusalem, we can take it back from the Romans, and then just move our way marching toward the west, and eventually this Messiah king may can lead us to conquer the Romans as well. So Herod is freaking out because he represents Rome there. And so now this threat of this eastern empire coming in and maybe taking away not just his authority, but coming in to threaten the authority of all of Rome, he is in big, big trouble. So he freaks out. And it says he's deeply disturbed. Um, And it says all of Jerusalem with him. You may know the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay? That's kind of what's going on here. All of Jerusalem is, is scared. Because they know if Herod is upset, it means suffering for everybody else. Because they knew what kind of king he was. They knew his history. They knew how desperately he was going to hold on. He had had his own wife and, and kids murdered to, to save his power. Like, he would do anything. And so everybody was afraid. So this is kind of the scene. In those three verses, this is sort of the, this, this is the clash. This is a huge... We think of, of this time when we read it as being peaceful... And we sing songs like Silent Night. But this was, a, this was a, a, a bomb waiting to explode. So look at verse 4. So how does Herod react to this? So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. Herod is threatened. And so he has to come up with a plan. I think of the Grinch. But the Grinch had an idea. He had a wonderful, awful idea. And so did Herod. He calls all the Jewish priests and the scribes together. And he says, show me in your scriptures where the prophecy of this coming Messiah 
is and show, tell me where he's supposed to be born. And they, they direct him to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Verse 6 here in this text is a reference to Micah 5, 2 that says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So Herod then helps the Magi find Jesus. He, he calls them secretly, calls them in and says, look, I know where the king is that you're looking for. I'm going to tell you where to go. The prophecies say he's in Bethlehem. Go there. That's where you'll find him. Search carefully for him. And when you find him, you come back. You inform me as the ruler of this region so that I can go and worship him too. Herod had absolutely no desire to go and worship Jesus Herod was bent on self-preservation. And we know later, what we'll read in a few moments, his true intention was to find this king and kill him because he did not want this king starting a war between the east and the west, and he didn't want this king coming in and taking over the kingdom that he had built because it was his So we know that the Magi go and they find Jesus in Bethlehem. And in contrast to Herod, the Magi come with genuine hearts of worship. They recognize him for who the scriptures say he is. They don't completely understand the kingdom that he's come to rule. But they understand that he's a king And they understand that he's sent from Daniel's God. And we want to come and worship him. And so they come with their gifts. And the gifts that they bring, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh, those were gifts of coronation. Those were gifts that you brought to a king on the day of his coronation. And so those were royal gifts that they brought to him. Those were appropriate gifts for a king. But then look what God does in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he, Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son, which is a reference to a prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So God gives a dream both to Joseph. And notice that it says the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream. But the Magi doesn't say that the angel of the Lord came to them in a dream. But somehow God used their dreams to direct them away from going back to Herod. They knew something was up. God had revealed to them somehow that this guy is up to no good. And whether it be 
for um, whether it be for political reasons, military strategy, or whatever, God leads them and says, don't go back to him. Don't do what he said. So they go back to the east after they find him. In their, uh, they go back to their own country. And then God warns Joseph, and he says, get up now. This was an urgent, and you notice he says he... He took the child and his mother during the night and escaped Egypt. It was, it was now. The angel said immediately, get up, get the baby, get Mary. You guys have to get out of here because Herod is about to come try to find him and kill him. And so Joseph is obedient. He flees into Egypt and stays there, as the angel said, until Herod's death. But here's, here's probably the most horrific detail of the story that really gives us a picture of of what was going on inside the heart and mind of this king, Herod. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. I think sometimes when we read the Christmas story, we just kind of skim right over that. And we don't really stop and ponder exactly what's happening here. Like I said, we, we kind of want to think that every, all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were... Um, Sleeping in heavenly peace. But it very much wasn't like that. Can you imagine being a a Jewish parent? Hearing this news of what Herod has decreed. Knowing that there's nothing you can do about it. And you are waiting on a Roman soldier to come into your home and murder your baby boy right in front of you. This is how desperate Herod was. This is how much insanity his own desire for power had driven him to. This is unthinkable. This is unimaginable. This is a a horror story that he would do such a thing. His plan was to have the Magi do the work, search, find this child that was the threat to him, and then have his military go in and take care of this one child. But the Magi tricked him. Or in his mind, they tricked him. And so he had been disrespected now. He had been made a fool of in his own kingdom by these foreigners from the east. And he wasn't going to put up with that. This this is is a, a, a furious... Anger, the words, the, the, the Greek words that are used in this text to describe Herod's reaction 
means that he literally lost control of his passions and his passions took control of him. He literally went crazy. And if he could not guarantee the death of this newborn baby that was a threat to his throne, he was going to do everything he could to make sure he got that baby. And if he couldn't get that baby, he was going to take out everybody else's in his place because he was so mad. Didn't matter to him. He, was, he literally went insane. He was holding so tightly to what he had, what he had built. This is my kingdom, and nobody is going to take it away from me. History tells us that Herod, after that, he died a a painful, agonizing death from, from disease. And he died with just as much of a grip on whatever was left of the kingdom he had. He died with his hand holding on as tight as he possibly could. Alone. Now, I know what you're thinking. Eric, this is the Sunday before Christmas. Why are you talking about this? Like, what is what? What's the point? Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. Why, why is this? Like, where is the silent night? Where is the heaven and nature sing and peace on earth and all of that stuff? That like that's that's Christmas. It's not psychopathic baby killers. Why are why are we why are we talking about that? Why is this even in the story? You may look at this and go, why in the world does Matthew even write about this? This is horrible. I'll tell you why I think this is here. I think it's to remind me and to remind all of us that there is a little bit of this king in every one of us. You say, whoa, hold on a second. Are you calling me a psycho baby killer? No, no, not at all. But all of us build our own kingdoms. We have our families. We get our jobs and careers set up, and we we do everything we can to build it up. We have our homes. We gather wealth, possessions, things as best we can and we and we build things up the way we like it and we in our own lives are building up our own little kingdoms and maybe even within our own personal kingdom we have lots of small kingdoms we build kingdoms at our jobs and we build a kingdom in our home and we build kingdoms among our friends and the people that we interact with we we build kingdoms for ourselves And we like to have things the way we like it. And we work hard and we put energy and investment into building something that represents who we are. And all of those things are true of Christmas. 
Jesus does come to bring peace and bring hope and bring joy. That is the heart of the message of Christmas. But that is only for the ones who will receive the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. We all either have at one time or still are being builders of our own kingdoms. And all of the joy and all the peace and all of the redemption and all that Christ has come to bring us, all the things that we sing about in our Christmas carols, those are all very real, but they are only real if we're willing to come down off of our thrones. If we're willing to take our kingdoms that we have built and tear them down and set them aside and recognize that this baby born in a manger is the king. He's not a king. He's the king. And until I come down off of my throne and tear down my kingdom and invite him to come take that place in my life, then all of the joy and the peace and all the things that we sing about at Christmas don't really count for me. They didn't count for Herod. Because he wouldn't let go. I want to read Psalm chapter 2 to you. The second psalm in the book of Psalms. Because it is a psalm describing the coronation of the kind of king that Jesus has come to be. And listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. And rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son. Or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him are happy. This psalm is about that baby. That psalm is, this is the king that was being born. It doesn't matter how hard you fight the coming of his kingdom, you won't stop it. And this psalm says to all the kings and rulers of the world, be smart, be wise. You may think that you can do something to stop the coming of God's kingdom through his son, but you can't. Satan tried to kill the line of Jesus over and over and over throughout 
the history of the Old Testament, he tried to stop it before Jesus was ever born. Herod tried to kill Jesus and stop the kingdom right after he was born. And the Jews and the Romans tried to stop the kingdom of Jesus by hanging him and crucifying him on a cross. But the end result is the kingdom of Jesus is forever. And you're not going to stop it. So you say, well, what's the big point, Eric? What is it you want us to go home with? This is it. To embrace the fullness of Christmas requires we lay down our kingdoms in full surrender to Jesus' kingdom in us. I could tell you that you will experience the fullness of what Christmas means by gathering together with your family, by by having a meal together, by exchanging presents, by singing the songs, by even sitting and reading the Christmas story out of the Bible together. And those are all amazing things that I will do and I hope you will do. But you can do all those things and completely never, ever experience Christmas. Because we can't experience the coming of the King until we lay down our own kingdom. Until we surrender everything that we've tried to build up for ourselves. Jesus said it himself later in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. This is what Jesus says. Then he said to all of them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Here's the last point. Jesus was born so he could die. That's the whole mission. He calls us to die so we can be born again in him. He was born so that he could die. And until we are willing to die to ourselves, to die to our own desires, our own seekings, our own kingdoms that we're trying to build. It's through that surrender to what he's done that we're able to be born into his kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will not ever go away. It will last forever and ever and ever. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The king of what? If we're going to sing glory to the newborn king, what's he the king of? He's got to be the king of our hearts. He's got to be the king 
of our lives. He has to be the king over everything. Or it's not Christmas. Christmas.